Welcome to Enid Monthly In-Depth. This week's guest is new Enid Fire Chief Jason Courier. We talked to Chief Courier about growing up in Northwest Oklahoma, his life before becoming a firefighter, following in the footsteps of two well-respected chiefs, and what he has in store for the Enid Fire Department. We are currently recording podcasts with better equipment, so hopefully the next one you hear will sound significantly better. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast channel, visit enidmonthly.com, and pick up a free Enid Monthly magazine at a local retailer. But first, here's Chief Jason Courier. This is Robert with Enid Monthly In-Depth, and I'm excited to be here with Enid Fire Chief Jason Courier. How are you, Jason? Good, Robert. How are you doing? I'm good. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate uh, you giving us the time. It's really exciting to uh, talk to a new fire chief and uh, to kind of see what uh, what's on your agenda. Is that cool with you? Absolutely. All right. Well, great. Well, uh, Chief, t- tell us a little bit about your background and where you came from. Did you grow up here in Enid or somewhere else? Uh, and how did you get here to Enid? Well, mostly grew up here in Enid when I was uh, really young. We moved around uh, several places in Oklahoma, Kansas, Louisiana, because my dad was in the oil field. Uh, but by 1981, we moved here and settled down. And uh, my dad worked for Ward Petroleum for many, many years. And now he... Uh, uh, has moved on to manage Enid Concrete and uh, been here ever since. All right. So you grew up here at, at yes, later on in life? pretty much. Okay. Since uh, third grade. Third grade? Yeah. All right. Well, cool. So you went to Enid High School or did you go somewhere else? No, I went to Chisholm. Chisholm. Okay. So uh, you're a Chisholm boy and, yeah. and uh, did you play football, sports, anything? Football and track. All right. Uh, and uh, did you have brothers, sisters? I've got a younger sister. She's a year and a half younger than me and my brother is 10 years younger than me. Okay. So they all go to Chisholm as well? They did. They stick around Enid? Uh, my sister is still here, yes, and she teaches in the Enid uh, school system now. And uh, my brother, he lives in Missouri. Um, he moved to Missouri uh, to finish his high school years because he wanted to sing. And so he's uh, kind of a, his own yeah, the only thing going on over in Branson. He does, uh, <laughs> he does a lot of singing, and uh, now he's in real estate. But, yeah, he's been in Branson area since his high school years. All right, cool. And you said your family, uh, your uh, your parents are still here in Enid? Yes, sir. Uh, my dad and my mom live here and, and uh, have always been here since, like I said, since 1981. And uh, my mom was a teacher for many, many years and retired a while back. And, and uh, now she just help my, helps my dad with her uh, farm habit. <laughs> well, I hear that. There's a lot of people with farm habits these days, isn't there? <laughs> right. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, did you want to be a, uh, did you always want to be a firefighter or what, what called, called you to that career? So I imagine like most boys would say at some point uh, in my childhood, I wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I first got on the fire department, my grandma, uh, gave me a book uh, that she said uh, was the same book I wanted her to read to me every time we went and visit her as a really young child, and it was about fire trucks. <clears throat> so, yeah, probably so. Um, I did a lot of other things in life before I got here. Uh, I worked on farms. I worked in the oil field. I worked in the restaurant industry and a lot of other part-time gigs uh, doing different things. But uh, it was probably oh, probably about uh, late, late 90s when I worked at a hospital doing outpatient surgery stuff. I kind of got interested in the medical industry, and uh, so I decided to get my EMT, and that's when I started working towards getting on the fire department. Okay, so that was your first experience with actual what they actually do in the fire department was through uh, the EMT program. 
Yes. All right. Well, neat. How, about how old were you when you pulled the trigger and said, I'm going to go apply for Enid Fire Department? Uh, I was actually 27. I got kind of a late start for this career, this kind of career, um, but I think it served me well. I had a lot of life experience to bring with me when I came in, and, and I, think it's, I think it's paid off well. Is that uncommon to start at 27? Uh, yeah, we hire as young as 18, but I think our hire, average hiring age is probably in their early 20s. Uh, so 27 is a little bit towards the upper end, but we've hired guys uh, all the way up close to 40. Oh, wow. For the first job? Yes. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so when you decided to apply for the, did you just want to do Enid Fire or did you apply at other places as well? So at the time, uh, I was living in Oklahoma City and uh, I was in the process of getting a hired on there. And I woke up the morning of my interview um, and just decided, well, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm just not a big city kind of person. I've been there about 10 years and hate traffic and all that stuff. So uh, I called them and canceled my interview and called guys here in Aiden and found out uh, when they were taking applications here. So uh, didn't apply a lot of places. Almost pulled the trigger on Oklahoma City, but decided to come back home. Okay, well, a, a Oklahoma City, you know, that's a, a, that's very competitive uh, to be a firefighter in Oklahoma City, right? Yes, yes it is. Uh, and so, uh, and not that it's not, I'm sure you guys get plenty of applications for open spots here. Yes. Uh, uh, it, was there anything that, besides just, the, besides just the size of the city, that is that the reason why you ultimately wanted to make a change to Enid? Well, when I was younger, you know, you always, you know, grass is greener kind of thing. I grew up here in, in a moderate-sized town, and so I just was looking for more opportunities, and that's why I moved to Oklahoma City. <clears throat> and that was good for a while, but by the time I hit that age, looking to settle down and find a career instead of just a job, um, it wasn't just the traffic, but just the big city environment that I decided wasn't for me. And uh, like I said, all my family was back here. I uh, just decided it was time to move home and and uh, this is where I wanted to settle down and, and start a family. All right. Did uh, what? What was the interview process like here in Eden? Uh, the hiring process in most departments is, is basically the same. Uh, it all starts out with a written test and a physical agility test, and that's how they uh, decide a hierarchy of a hiring list. And so, depending on your scores, is where you end up on the list from one down. And when they start to hire by when they get open position. Uh, they'll call number one and they'll come in and they'll finish with some of the rest of the testing that costs money. Uh, so they don't just spend money on the whole hiring list at once. So when it's when it's your turn, they got an opening, they call you, and that usually involves a lie detector test, uh, medical physical testing, uh, because you have to qualify to get into the pension system. And so there's stress tests and all kinds of physical exams you have to take to make sure you're healthy coming in. Um, and then once you do get hired on, then they all have their specific training that they give you on the job. Well, I wouldn't pass the stress test. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, some days now, I wonder if I would. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, so the so the first step is taking the you said the physical agility test and and uh, uh, written test. Is that yes? Okay, uh, and that ranks you uh, according to your scores in both of those things. Correct. Uh, do people at that point do they get eliminated if they don't score high enough on certain things? They can. Yes, you got to have a minimum score of seventy on the written to move forward in the process. Uh, and the physical agility is pass or fail. Uh, so there are several different categories of the physical agility test. Carrying 125 pounds, I think it's 50 feet. You have to run a mile and a half in less than, I believe it's 13 minutes. You know, certain criteria like that, and that's all dictated by the pension system, a minimum standard. Uh, that way, everything's consistent for people who qualify to get into the pension system. 
and, and so that is is that pretty consistent across all major departments of any size? Yes, I think maybe the state pension requirements vary from state to state. But as far as departments in Oklahoma, we all follow the department pension rules, yes. Okay. The Oklahoma pension rules. Did, did, I assume you made it on your first try? I did, yeah. yes. <laughs> and, and did you, at that point, was it easy for you to see, oh, uh, that I'm going to be a fire chief someday? Or was it just, <laughs> or were you like, man, I'm just overwhelmed with what I'm learning now. I just want to go and do the best job I can, and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, no, I... Uh, to be honest with you, I never had any aspirations to be the chief. Um, first day on the job, loved it. I'm, I'm a hands-on kind of person, uh, so the physical labor out there on the trucks and working with the guys and the, and, the, and the tools and all that stuff, it was just right up my alley. Um, there is lots to learn when you get on here. Uh, you can focus in different areas like, you know, different uh, levels of EMT and instructor and things like that. Hazmat has different levels of certifications that you can get all the way up to Hazmat Tech. Um, so you can specialize in some things, but just the general knowledge you have to learn on this job is is astounding. I mean, Pretty broad. A lot to learn. Yeah, a little bit of everything. Um, but no, they, they keep you really busy when you start, no matter what you do, even if you just stick with the basics for a long time. Uh, the really cool part about it is, is I've known guys who went their whole 20 plus year career and never promoted, didn't want to. They loved being a back end guy, kicking doors, putting out fires, uh, helping people in, in, in that way. Um, you have the option to try to promote and we have minimum requirements as you move through the ranks, but then you can promote to driver and actually drive the truck, pump the truck, stuff like that. Then you can promote again, become an officer of the truck. And so as you work your way up through the ranks, you learn different things and things like that. Uh, my plan from day one was to, uh, my goal was 30 years, uh, which is a little bit above average retirement age uh, for a fireman. Uh, but I, my plan was to spend all 30 on the truck and uh, to go ahead and promote all the way up to the officer. Uh, but my goal was always to, uh, you know, my dream was always to stay on the truck because I like that part of the job. Mm -hmm. But 21 years later, Things change. Uh, this opportunity came up, and I've just always, uh, I've loved this job. I love this career. I like taking care of the guys out there that do that job. Uh, I was a union president for six years. I was on the union executive board for 14 years, and that's what the union does is help advocate for the firefighters and their safety and things like that. And by doing that for those that many years, I just really kind of changed my focus from kicking in doors and putting out fires to uh, more along the lines of taking care of the guys that do that job. Well, that's a, I think that's a really cool perspective to have rather than just be a, uh, that you're a paper pusher now, you're taking care of guys. I mean, I think that's really cool to think about. Absolutely, and that's what the job is. Um, you know, you could say that those guys work for me because I'm the chief. Uh, that's not how I feel. I feel like I work for them. They have needs. My job is to provide them with the training and tools it takes to get the job done right and go out and take care of the public. Well, one thing that's really interesting about Enid is the way that the fire department and the police department is funded. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So it's changed a little bit over the years. We used to get 17% of the sales tax revenue that the city brings in. Um, times change and fire trucks get more expensive and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but recently we changed the funding mechanism so that now the safety, the public safety sales tax funds our capital purchases, which is the buildings and, and trucks and, and large high value equipment. Um, and the city provides the operational side of our budget. And so when we talk about uh, the uh, city, the sales tax, that's a quarter cent sales tax. 
uh, I believe you said that's split between you and the police department, correct? The public the public safety sales tax, yes. That's okay. Quarter cent sales tax, and we get half of that, and that that creates about three hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year in revenue just for purchasing fire trucks and stations and large high value equipment. Now that seems, and you said that was just recently, but it's been a, several years since that's been. It's been a few there. years, yes. Okay. Well, now the public safety sales tax started in like two thousand one. Uh, the way we changed our funding mechanism just happened just a couple of years ago. Okay. So when you say that, uh, explain a little bit about what you mean, how the funding mechanism, how that changed. Well, it used, like I said, it used to be 17%, and that money went and split between operations and capital. But now they've just kind of redesignated which dollars go to which account. I see. So it's more that there's uh, that they're actually earmarked now those dollars from that public safety sales tax. Correct. Uh, okay, I see. Uh, and that public safety sales tax, it was uh, it was determined back in um, 2001 is when that started. Yes, and funny that you ask in detail about that because I hired on in 2000, and I'd been on probably less than six months when they told me and the eight guys that had been hired right before me that we should probably start looking for a job. Uh, because they were going to have to lay off the the nine newest firemen because of funding. And back then, the the budget for Enid was uh, pretty low, right? Yes. Well, uh, I had a a little bit of a... So talking about that sales tax at the time, that's something that the city did, uh, the public did, to uh, ensure that both the fire and the police uh, were sufficiently funded. Yes, because at the time, sales tax revenue wasn't really generating enough to fully support everything that we were needing to do. Well, it's a good. So when we're at the at the supermarket or getting our clothes or whatever, and and we see that that sales tax comes on, we think, man, that's a little high. At least we know that it's going for something good, right? You're absolutely right. Yeah, your public services, uh, not just fire and police, uh, but all of your public services come from sales tax, obviously, and so it's important to keep them well funded so we have nice streets and and all those things. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about what the role of Enid Fire is in uh, our community. Well, we, of course, like we've been talking, we, we provide uh, fire suppression, fire uh, public safety education, uh, fire arson and, and investigation and in building inspections, fire code enforcement. Um, so we do a lot of different things. Besides that, over the years, we've had different smoke detector programs. Uh, we go out and help in community projects. We get involved with uh, community organizations. Uh, just yesterday, uh, I went with one of our engine crews and we read to some of the grade school kids here in town. Um, but those kids are our resource for future customers, future employees. Um, and so the more the public knows about us, the better. The better. Well, to, uh, how many employees do you have total? 84. Okay. Uh, and so obviously we're not a uh, community that you're going to have a significant amount of structural fires or uh, things like, like you'd say in the middle of Chicago or the middle of New York, right? right. Uh, so uh, is there a considerable amount of downtime for your officers and or for your firefighters, excuse me? Uh, and if so, what do they do during that time? Okay. So when I started about 20 years ago, I want to say our call volume probably ran somewhere around 3,000 calls a year. Uh, now, a little run, less than 10 a day, is yes, that right? Yeah. Okay. So now we run close to 5,000 calls a, uh, a year. Okay. So the reason that's changed so much um, is because one, we have had a significant decline over the two decades in structure fires because of the fire safety education, because of our inspection programs, 
because of the smoke detector programs. If you find it sooner, you know, more prevention, obviously you're going to have less fires. Uh, Codes, better too? A lot of code changes over the years, sure. Uh, building materials and, and how buildings are constructed, uh, means of egress rules, I mean, all those things are designed for, for people's safety. And uh, so, you know, you hear stories like the, the bar fires where people, a lot of people got stuck. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, those rules for means of egress are very important. You know, there's, there's good reasons why we have those rules, why you can't lock doors uh, on buildings that there's a lot of people in. You know, it's, it's not safe. So all that stuff does con- has contributed to uh, our low, uh, the lower numbers of structure fires over the last couple of decades, uh, my last couple of decades, uh, of course, well before that. Um, but we also do more medical calls. So uh, that's kind of our role as a fire department is changing with time is we do a lot of EMS work, lift assist, you know, a lot of assistance calls to the public. Now, often you guys are the first on the scene for a medical call, right? Yes. Uh, and when you, uh, and part of that is, is you've got more uh, availability. We've only got a couple of uh, ambulances in town. Correct. Uh, and then, so you guys, I mean, obviously are, are available more often. Uh, are, is there an EMT on every truck? Yes, we're all EMT certified. Oh, yeah. okay. So when you get hired on here, if you already have an EMT, that's one, one less class you have to take. Uh, but if you hire on to the Indian Fire Department without an EMT license, we provide the class for you and provide study time to get it while you're working on the job. Uh, and we send you the classes in the evenings and weekends and get your certification within the first year. Do they? Uh, do you have any advanced EMTs that are on the trucks as well? No, no advanced EMTs, no paramedics. We're all basic EMTs. Uh, we work as a first response agency. So the plan is, you know, Life uh, EMS has their paramedic ambulances and since we're sped out all over town, we can get there quick. Uh, we have our basic EMT license and education, and so we can get there quickly, start the process of gathering information, do vital medical stuff that's necessary while we're waiting for the paramedics to get there. Now, some communities of our size, their fire departments run their uh, paramedic programs, their yes. ambulances. Uh, has there, I assume at some point, there's been talks about that. Uh, is that something that, uh, that you uh, have looked at yourself or something that's interesting to you to talk about? So yes, the conversations happen several times over the years. Um, in some situations, it's beneficial. Depends on the city, the resources, um, you know, how close they are to other communities. Some other towns, a similar size to ours, have tried the fire department taking over the ambulance service and haven't had a whole lot of a success. Stillwater, I think, is the Stillwater closest one. one of them. Okay. Yes, and that was the most recent one. Um, it just takes a lot of logistics. If you're not set up for it initially, for example. All of our stations are only designed to hold, house three people at a time. So if you're going to institute more ambulance services inside the fire department, you have the logistics of the buildings, the, the expense of the trucks, of the training, hiring personnel. There's just a lot of money and the infrastructure that has to be put into it. You're talking millions of dollars just to get started. Uh, and then the regulation is always difficult. You have to hire more staff to, to account for the, the finance end of it, the billing and things like that. The licensing stuff is, is complicated too. So it's it's a huge financial expense, much less a logistical challenge to get into that business. That makes a lot of sense to me that it would be very expensive to get in, especially, uh, and that's something I hadn't considered is the the, the physical uh, aspect of it, uh, adding uh, new bays and, and that sort of thing oh, yeah. uh, to be able to do so. Uh, is there, 
so it, it sounded like to me that what you were saying is is that it's talked about, it's considered. You can't say it's off the table, but there's no plans in the any near future for that to happen here in Enid. Right. Yeah, we always take a look at, you know, always reassess, try to figure out what the best way to take care of the public is, but we also have to be financially responsible. So we try to try to balance that all the time. That makes sense. Now, you, we talked a little bit about one thing that uh, people don't really think about that the fire department does. I mean, obviously, you, everybody thinks about you guys showing up on the medical calls, uh, showing up if there's a fire at your house or smoke detectors go off. Uh, but uh, the other, another thing you said you mentioned was uh, the investigations, arson investigations. Right. Now, you guys, that's something that you guys are in charge of, right? Correct. So can you talk a little bit about that? So our... our uh, fire marshal division. We have a fire marshal and three assistant fire marshals, and they all work eight to five throughout the week, uh, but they rotate, taking turns being on call for fires that happen at night. Uh, they also go out and do random occupancy checks at businesses that are open after hours, uh, because going to a building, for example, a bar uh, during the day doesn't really give you a full idea of what goes on in that building. Uh, so they do most of their work where it doesn't interfere with the business's operation. Uh, but to be very accurate and make sure we're doing our job like we need to be, they do go out to businesses after hours. Uh, for example, you know, again, bars. Uh, they'll go out and walk around and make sure they're complying with the occupancy limits and things like that, making sure they're not locking doors and limiting egress to people in case there's an emergency. Um, it's all it's all done for customer for civilian safety and just make sure people are safe if something bad happens. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, and, and that seems like the overarching theme, especially the Indian Fire Department, is is that uh, you guys are well trained, uh, well prepared uh, for if something bad happens. Not uh, so y'all are planning for the worst uh, and hoping for the best. It sounds that's like exactly <laughs> what we say. Yes, that's right. Plan for the worst, hope for the best. Well, good. Well, what are some of the uh, uh, things that you're really excited about? Are you that uh, that you're really proud of the Enid Fire fire department for uh, accomplishing that you think that we do better than anyone else we have a great group of people here uh, everybody back there is completely committed to their job um, they get excited when we get to do training uh, that's how much they love their jobs you know usually when you do continued education at work most people sigh kind of don't look forward to it that much but uh, they really love their jobs and it shows uh, the pride in what they do here around the station this place is always clean well kept uh, they stay busy uh, taking care of you know our own facilities that's one thing people probably don't realize is we clean and maintain almost all all of our stuff ourselves uh, we have a mechanics division that works on our trucks we clean our own stations cook our own meals uh, the guys even buy their own tvs you know there's not a tax dollar that gets wasted around here um, but out in the field they're very professional again very caring they care about the public and that's what they're here to do. You know, they're not just here to drag hoses. They're here because they care about people and want to help. Well, I can tell you with the experience that I've had with the fire uh, people in the fire department uh, that I've been really impressed with their professionalism as well. And any time that uh, they come in and, and uh, I, sadly, my in my house, my uh, smoke detector goes off a little more. I'm a, uh, I, I'm a, a, a good enough cook that I can usually keep it under control, but it's, it happens to be right by the kitchen. So <laughs> sometimes I have to let them know that uh, everything's fine. It's just a little little uh, burnt uh, steak or oh, something. That's, that's okay, we can handle that. A couple of other things that we uh, that you mentioned were the uh, smoke detector program. That uh, tell tell us a little bit about what that is. So it's kind of varied over the years. Um, used to a long time ago, we would just do it upon request. 
Uh, and then, you know, different programs kind of arise from time to time. And, and there was a program that instituted, they started supplying us with smoke detectors to go out and do in public. And we would go door to door, knocking on doors, just offering to put them in people's homes. Um, that really took a lot of time and was kind of a waste of resources because we were just giving them to people who didn't really need them. They already had them uh, or could have been doing it themselves. And we could have been more productive doing other things in the community. Um, so that massive smoke detector program that we used to do has kind of phased out a little bit. Uh, but we do do them at request. If anybody knows someone needs a smoke detector, uh, is unable to put one up themselves or unable to afford one, uh, doesn't know where they should go, things like that, we're very happy to help them. They just need to call down here and talk to the fire marshal's uh, division, and we will get them taken care of. And another thing that uh, when I was a new dad, uh, I was very concerned about my car seat, and uh, oh, yeah. and I knew that uh, uh, that the best way to uh, to make sure that my car seat was installed correctly was to come to the fire department. Do you guys still do that? Yes, sir, we do. Uh, that is one of the certifications that is individually based where you give people the option to do that ad additional training. Uh, and again, just like everything else, uh, it kind of changes with time. Sometimes we have a lot of guys doing it and sometimes our number, numbers kind of dwindle. Um, but we do still have, I think, uh, four or five guys on the department that are still certified to do car seats. Uh, because of liability reasons, only the people certified to do car seats can do them. So what do you suggest if somebody's concerned about how their car seat's hooked up and they uh, call and make an appointment or stop by the main office or how would they uh, avail themselves of that service? Okay, so basically uh, it'd be similar to, to make an appointment. Uh, you can call the main fire station number or come down here to the front office uh, and Cindy and Merlin or people there in the front office can answer your questions, but they will find out who on duty does car seats and which station they're at. Now, you may have to drive to a substation to find a guy uh, that's, that's able to do that for you. But every day of the week, we have somebody somewhere who can put a car seat in for you. Well, I know I really appreciated that. And I, and I see car seats to this day where uh, the child's either strapped in completely incorrectly or, or they're definitely installed incorrectly. And so uh, that can make a real big difference in the safety of the child. Absolutely. Yeah, it must be done correctly because if it's not done right, it can actually cause more harm then they're not being in the car seat at all. Well, in your 20-something years that you've been here, what has been, uh, what do you see as some of the challenges that we faced as a, uh, as a community and a, a department uh, as it relates to fire? I think it's probably mostly the transition from the type of calls we take. Um, you know, we have a high percentage uh, population that's elderly. Um, and, you know, just it seems like people's general health has kind of gotten worse over the years. Obesity is a problem, things like that. So a lot of our challenges come in how to assist those people that need our help on medical calls, um, how to lar move large patients without hurting them or ourselves. Um, so, you know, it went from trying to be safe on the fire scene to how to be safe uh, taking care of ourselves and how to take care of our patients. You know, uh, <clears throat> and this isn't saying anything about life because they're a for-profit or a, a uh, they, they're there to make money, but right. they, they're a little bit limited on staff. And so they've got a two or three ambulances that run at one time. And if one of them's in Oklahoma City on a, a transportation call and one of them's on an, another call and you happen to get there, has there, is there a challenge in that you guys get there and y'all are waiting for life and, and it's a significant emergency that you're worried about? It does happen from time to time. Um, they do have two trucks in service in town at all times. 
if they get busy or one has to leave town on a, on a long distance run, they will bring an ambulance closer by. So for example, they, they provide service in Hennessy. If they are down to one truck here in town, they will take the Hennessy truck and bring it down to Wacomas to help provide a little bit faster response to Enid. Um, there's days where they have two trucks in town and they have extra people they can call in, but they still can't keep up. I mean, you know, there are times where our guys are on scene with patients for an extended period of time. Uh, Life does a pretty good job of adjusting to the priority of the call to go over the most important ones first. Um, some days just everything goes in a hand basket and you know even we don't have enough personnel to handle everything that's going on all at once it's yeah. just sporadic you never know what's going to happen and it might be going from sleepy quiet day to all hands on deck <laughs> everybody's racing around doing the best they can and can't keep up it's it's unpredictable what's your biggest fear what's what's your if this happened this particular day here needed what are you mostly can what 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 would keep you up at night? Well, where we live, you know, tornadoes are always something to consider. We've been very, very fortunate all these years. Um, they've been all around us, but never actually really hit town like potentially could. Um, a fire starting downtown and with those old buildings side by side downtown, that's, you know, that could be a really bad situation. I think the type of community we are, the size we are with our response times, I don't know that anything really just stands out as a singular event uh, that scares me to death. Um, what bothers me the most is some of the vacant and dilapidated buildings that we have, putting our guys in dangerous situations for, uh, for buildings in bad conditions. Uh, it's, it's our guys' safety yep. that bothers They're... me the most. They're going to go all out to get things done. They'll put themselves at risk for people. And uh, that's that's our job, and it's something we accept. But that's what keeps me up at night. Uh, that's fair. I uh, and you know sometimes I drive around town and I see a house, and I know somebody's living in there, and I and I worry, man, if there's a fire in that house or something, it'd be very difficult. Uh, is the, the we've gotten more? It's definitely not uh, been uh, expanded that much in uh, downtown, but we've gotten more residents and lofts downtown. Yes. Uh, is and you mentioned that if a big fire started down there, that with those old buildings, uh, that that could be a potential problem. Is the fact that there are residences down there does that uh, uh, create a, a bigger issue for you guys or bigger concern it changes our focus for sure because it went from empty vacant storage up on the second floors to people that we have to take in consideration and be able to get out of there um, again with our spot of a speed of our response we should be able to get to those people pretty quickly um, managing the fire would be a challenge not in the places that they live because they've been brought up to code to be able to live in that building like with fire suppression and uh, that sort of thing? Absolutely, with the building materials used inside to slow fire spread, suppression system, things like that. Uh, but it's the, still a vacant uh, second story in the building right next to that living space uh, that would that would definitely catch our uh, concern. Sure, and, I, and of course I uh, have a building uh, downtown that's three stories tall and the two stories on top uh, are definitely not, not uh, you know, they're plaster and wood everywhere and you have probably 120 year old wood. So, right, yeah. so I'm assuming that that would uh, probably go up pretty quickly. That would be a problem, yes. <laughs> so well, uh, hopefully I never have to avail myself of your <laughs> services down there. That, that's our, that's the, uh, that's definitely the hope. Uh, well, is there any other, any other challenges that you think that you guys in the next, say, decade that you guys really are, are going to be striving? to me I think it's just going to continue the same trend that we've been on uh, medical is going to be our primary 
uh, bread and butter calls. Um, again, with our aging population, uh, we're just more of a retirement type of a town. Uh, things could change in their future. You know, they're trying to bring in more industry and things like that. We hear of some potential future businesses moving into town uh, that could create more jobs. Um, but it's being able to provide adequate medical service to the people that we have. That's going to be the biggest challenge. Uh, we're going to have to find a way uh, to provide more ambulance and, and first responder um, service to the community. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, you mentioned big industry. We've got a few big industries around town, especially on the outskirts of town. Right. Uh, do you guys train, like let's say Coke uh, Industries, do you guys train with them uh, to make sure that you're prepared for a disaster out there? So we have emergency response plans with those large businesses around town, um, Coke Nitrogen, you know, the, uh, the, fer- uh, the fertilizer plant, the Coke plant, um, Tyson Foods, uh, all of those big facilities, we do train with them periodically. Um, that's going to be one of uh, the things that we focus on in the near future is doing specific type of call training with them, some on the, some of the high hazards, um, and hydrous storage at those facilities for their cooling, um, chlorine storage for their water treatment, things like that that we're going to focus a little bit more on on specific types of calls. Uh, you know, we're pretty good at the fire stuff. We've got a little bit of practice under our belt there, but. Uh, it's it's more along the lines of the hazmat things that concern uh, me and my training officer that we have right now that we're going to start focusing a little bit more in that direction. Well, and they've got their own safety guys, of course, that are, that are out there that try to keep things as safe as possible. Yeah. Uh, but the, I assume if there was a large uh, accident that you guys would have to help out, right? Absolutely. And again, we're a first response agency, which means, which means like you said, they have some of their own crews on site. So all those places have a small hazmat team that they train for the immediate response to an emergency in their facility. And what they'll do is they'll assess it. If they can shut off or limit the hazard, uh, they will if they can do it safely. But they'll also in charge of immediate evacuation of their employees and, and trying to contain the hazard as much as they can. And when we get there, we have more resources, manpower, tools, and, and equipment that we can help them uh, controller facility problems. Are any of those, uh, uh, any of the uh, specific hazards that they have out there unique to this area that, that uh, somebody in, say, Stillwater wouldn't have to deal with that you guys have to specially train for? Well, you know, the fertilizer plant out there is one of the biggest in the country, and that is a high, high quantity of flammable material out there. Uh, so that's always something you know, on the back of our mind. Well, to put it in perspective, that's what the Murrah building bombing, uh, not that particular fertilizer, but they, they right. use fertilizer yes. uh, in that particular bombing. So yeah. it, it, explosive potential is great, I would assume. Absolutely. And yeah, they didn't even use, you know, a pickup load in perspective to what they store out in that facility out there. Of course, you know, the right kind, you know, they, they have a lot of safety factors in place. They know what they're doing, mm-hmm. obviously. Sure. They do it safely, but, you know, things do happen. Um, but yeah, we have a response plan with them. So if something happens, depending on what they have, what they call us for and where we go and help them and, and, but they kind of direct the first immediate response to those emergencies. What about the grain elevators? Is that a special, uh, hazard that you have to train specifically, uh, how to fight a fire or fire an explosion in a grain elevator? Yes, we do. And, and we try to do that periodically as well. Uh, anywhere from grain bin rescue, uh, we have a high angle rescue equipment, like a tripod and a winch. Uh, that we've gone up at the top of the elevators and repelled down into a half-filled bin to recover someone who's, you know, potentially, you know, who's a fake victim that's fallen down in the grain bin. And that's uh, not, somebody in Stillwater or Lawton probably wouldn't have that kind of training, right? 
they have grain. Uh, they have grain storage facilities, so oh, I'm I sure they probably yeah, do trailing. I guess it's not it real is specific Oklahoma. to us. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they do spread those around a little bit. Um, so yeah, there's probably not a lot specific to us. Uh, the food manufacturing with Tyson, um, that's a little bit unique to us. That's not very common everywhere, at least not to that scale. Um, and then, you know, the nitrogen plant is probably the most unique. Now, uh, do you guys deal with the rural fire departments uh, on a regular basis? Do you provide training? Do you provide uh, uh, sponsorship or, or uh, help whenever they need you? Uh, explain, uh, explain a little bit about that relationship that you have with the rural fire departments around us. Okay, so... We have, I believe it's nine volunteer departments uh, surrounding Enid within our response area uh, that we do work with on a semi-regular basis. So we have an automatic automatic aid response to three miles outside the city of city limits of Enid. That means you go no matter what? That's right. Okay, all right. Yeah, so we have a centralized 911 dispatch over here, and they take all the, all the calls for our area. <clears throat> and depending on where that is, they will send the appropriate trucks. So, for example... If they have a car wreck on the highway out east of town, um, if it's out close to the railroad tracks, if it's you know in that three mile range, they will send us and Fairmont and Breckenridge, and we'll all get there. And if and if the rest of the you know, first people there are starting to take care of it, if they don't need any help, they'll call everybody else off. Uh, but if they need help, they've got all those people coming to to provide equipment and manpower and get the job done and, and do whatever we need. And whether it be a structure fire in that area. Um, a grass fire, a vehicle accident, medical emergencies. We respond to medical emergencies three miles outside of town. And if, uh, as a matter of fact, into the town of Breckenridge sometimes. And if they get there and call us off, that's great. We just come home. And But if we get there first, we do what we can until they get there. And, and we all work together really well. Do you, Again, with the training or the, uh, do you guys help out with that? Or do they do their own training uh, separate from you guys? Or So they do their own training separate than us. Uh, Back around 2001, when we passed our safety sales tax, the county also passed a safety tax. And this provided a lot of equipment, and new fire stations, and a lot of training uh, money for them to get their training done on their own. And that's good because they really need a flexible schedule. Uh, you know, they have people that work full-time jobs, and so for them to be able to do the training when they can get to it really works for them, and that's good. That makes a lot of sense, too. What what about North Enid? Do they have their own fire? I, I just don't know. Yeah, North Enid does not have a fire department. Um, most of North Enid doesn't even have fire hydrants. Um, so when we go up there, we respond. We cover North Enid just like it's Enid. Uh, because it's within that three miles? Right. And so a lot of North Enid that we go to, if, if it is a fire, we'll have to take our tanker because there's no hydrants. Uh, but there are hydrants right there on the south and west sides of North Enid, and a little bit the northwest part and, and some of that uh, Chisholm Creek addition there. Uh, but yeah, we take care of them just like we do the rest of Enid. Well, that's interesting. I uh, uh, <clears throat> well, talk a little bit about uh, you, you said that you guys uh, work together certainly with the rural fire departments. Now, does that uh, so if there's a fire outside of that three miles? Uh, and it's a big grass fire. Uh, obviously, y'all don't want that to spread to your area. Right. Uh, do, do you guys end up responding if it becomes a larger fire than they can control? So like we talked about, the three-mile uh, range outside the city limits, that was an automatic aid. So we do we automatically go there no matter what. Farther outside of that, uh, and I've been as far as Guthrie, uh, that's called mutual aid. And so if a department nearby... Uh, we've done it with, I believe it was Hennessy, when their theater burnt down down mm -hmm. in downtown. 
uh, they called for mutual aid and they told us what they needed and we provided our ladder truck went down there and helped them protect the rest of the downtown buildings so it wouldn't burn down all of their downtown. Um, so that's mutual aid and then we will respond uh, to a mutual aid request depending on what they need and how long they're going to need it. Um, obviously if it's wildfire season we're not going to send all of our grass rigs two hours away. Uh, everybody under, has, under, has the understanding that you're going to send as much help as you can without, you know, exposing yourself unnecessarily. So, but yeah, we, we do go help other departments with different things. We've been out to Woodward area several times, the big fires you hear about out there. Uh, we'll send several guys in a truck out direction to help them when they request it. Um, we try not to say no to anybody because we definitely want them to come help us out uh, if we need the help. And in that same conversation, Vance Fire Department, mm -hmm. and we you know, we work with them same way, like you know two different departments. So it's almost like it's two different towns. Uh, we assist them on types of calls. They come cover for us if we have a really big incident and I have a lot of trucks tied up. They've been really good about helping cover the, the, the citizens of Enid or other needs while we're busy. That's really cool to hear. Uh, <clears throat> so. So basically what I hear you saying is, is that they're not going to call you if you're outside of that three miles unless they really need you. Absolutely. And, uh, and, sure. Okay. I hear you. Yeah. Uh, if you could snap your fingers and, and you could, there's one or two things that were your dream things that you could do for the fire department, what would it be? Well, it all comes down to money. <laughs> it's as simple as that. You know, uh, we're very fortunate. Uh, our city manager works with us really well. Um, and the city council, our fire civil service commission, we have a really gr good group of people that help us accomplish our mission. Our mission. With that said, fire trucks now, the last two we bought cost you know, $650,000. So it takes a little while to accumulate funds to be able to buy fire trucks. Uh, we're in pretty good shape right now. We've got a couple trucks that really you know, could use some extra attention to be put on the reserve list instead of frontline trucks. Uh, they do work and everything. We just like as much reliability as we can get. Uh, so, so new is good. It's not about, it's not necessarily about the shiny, uh, but it's it's about you know those trucks bounce up and down our roads. They have electronics and water and vibration all in one place, and you know that doesn't go well. Uh, so after about 10 years, you start to you start to have problems and. And when you have a truck that kind of starts acting up, you really, if you're going to stick some guys in a burning building, you really want to be able to depend on that truck uh, not to shut down in the middle of a structure fire and leave our guys stuck on the inside with no water. So it's things like that that, that we we really talk about. That makes a lot of sense. Did, now, you're following two guys that are that were very well respected in, in town, Chief Clover and Chief Jackson. Big shoes. Uh, big shoes to fill. <laughs> so uh, what are you most excited about uh, in this job? opportunity to help my guys, uh, like I said, get the job done so they can go out and help, help the citizens of Enid. Um, over the years, I've really started to, my interest in training has really started to grow. Um, not just more, but what kind of training we do. Uh, this fire department that I, that I grew up in, uh, a lot of it is learn on the job. Um, so I really kind of want to go back and focus on how we can help our guys be prepared before they get into a new position um, instead of them just kind of learning on the fly. Nothing is better than learning by getting your hands on it. So the learning on the job is a good way to go, but there's some things I think that we can tweak and improve 
to make sure that they're as well prepared as possible before they take that first step. And those tweaks job. are mostly in training, uh, the training that you guys do? Yeah, the type of training. Type sure. of training. All right, great. Well, Chief, I really appreciate you doing this, and I think we got some really good information about your background, your plans for uh, plans for the fire department. Uh, we're really excited that you're here. Uh, really, uh, um, you know, I, again, like I said, anytime I've had experiences with any of your, uh, the people under your command have been very respectful, very, uh, very good, and I think Thank that's you. something to really be proud of for Eden. Oh, we are. They're awesome people. So, well, thank you for listening to Enid Monthly In-Depth with Chief uh, Courier, and uh, we're excited that he's here, and, and hopefully he has a, a fantastic and long career. Thank Thanks, you, Chief. Robert.